Well, I hope you have your Bibles this morning. If you do, turn to Romans chapter 1. I guess if you have your high-tech device, you can use that also, or whatever we call those things these days. But Romans chapter 1, we're continuing uh, something we started last week. Uh, for those who weren't able to be with us last week, we began the study of the series on the book of Romans. And our goal is to go verse by verse uh, through this book, uh, a very rich book. Uh, I think last week we determined uh, probably the greatest letter ever written was a letter written to the Roman church there in Rome. And so we're going to continue that series this morning. And today we're looking at the declaration of the invitation. And of course, the series is entitled Royal Invitation. Look at the introduction there on your outline there in your passport. In this passage, the one we're going to be looking at today, Paul shares his love for the church and his passion for the gospel. While doing this, he outlines and discloses the characteristics of true, inspiring faith. Now, I think that many of us would agree that the Apostle Paul had what we would call a true, inspiring faith. Now, I want you to think of someone in your life, someone that may have been in your life in the past, maybe currently in your life, but think of someone in your life who champions some part of faith. Now, here's what I mean by that. Maybe they champion the area of evangelism, and you admire them, and, and what they do for reaching people for Christ really inspires you to the point that you're challenged to a point where you want to go out. Maybe it's someone in their prayer life. Of course, much prayer is done in a closet. It's hard to observe that. But, but maybe there's someone's prayer life. You had the privilege to see them up close and, and their, their prayer life really inspires you to, to meet with God regularly and to call upon him. Maybe it's a person's tremendous faith. I can't tell you how many times that I've been kind of down in the dumps before and started listening probably too much to talk radio or, or television and seeing all the news just to, to, to realize and sometimes forget that God is still in control until I come across a couple of my friends who remind me of that. And it's almost like they enjoy reminding me of that, thinking, you sinner, you. But anyway, but, but I see their tremendous faith. How about people's knowledge of Scripture? There's something about that. There's, the, the fact that they can take the Scripture and, and place it where it's needed. They have the wisdom of the Scripture. They have the knowledge, but they also have the discerning aspects of Scripture in which they can place it in a person's situation. Maybe it's someone's testimony that has inspired you. Have you ever heard of someone's testimony that you, you heard it and it was like, wow, look at God. He is amazing. He's truly made. Look at what he did on this person's life, in this person's life. I've met wives who've seen that happen to their husbands. I, I've met husbands who've seen that in their wives. And, and really, as a youth pastor, there were several times where I saw parents looking and that were inspired by the faith of their teenager. And so it can happen anywhere. You see, we all need examples of true, inspiring faith around us. That's the reason I believe the church is so important. It's because we need to see, we need the challenges, not only the challenge we, challenges we find in God's word. We need the living challenges that are out there in front of us. And so this morning, as I said earlier, I want us to look at a declaration of true, inspiring faith. What's its declaration? What is it really saying? The first thing we see there on your outline is its testimony. 
is testimony. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says this in verse 8. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. Now, of course, in, in the context of what he's writing here, he's writing this to a literal church, the church at Rome. He says that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, think about that. A church's faith is spread and is known to the whole world. Now, what would you say about that faith, that that faith were true? You say it was inspiring. And we know it's true because Paul is writing about it. You see, while Paul never had been to Rome, he did, he did know some who made up the church and, and heard of the faith of others. Paul was grateful for them and wanted to encourage them. Now, keep in mind that Paul wrote this letter while he was ministering over in Corinth. Now, let me just tell you about the church in Corinth. It was not the church you find in Rome. The church in Corinth was divided. They, I mean, they were divided over whose teaching they'd listened to, who inspired them the most. There was sexual immorality in the church. I mean, there was all kinds of problems in the church at, at, at Corinth. And so Paul, I, I would imagine, is sitting there and he's writing uh, to this church that seemed to have it all together. They seemed to have a faith that was vibrant, that was inspiring, that was known throughout the world. But he was sitting there trying to minister to a church in Corinth that had divisions everywhere he turned. It's kind of interesting when you see that. It's almost like Paul was saying, boy, I sure would like to be with you guys. <laughs> but yet, that's where he was writing this letter from. Notice that Paul thanked God for them. And how did he do it? Through Jesus Christ. Meaning he saw their testimony as a work of God. It wasn't just some, some of them turning over a new leaf. It wasn't them acting out morally in a good way. It was a testimony of faith that was not found in what they were doing. It was found in what Jesus Christ was doing in and through their life. You see, their testimony was not about a group of people turning over a new leaf, but people whose lives had been transformed. Next, look on your outline. A declaration of true inspiring faith. Next, we see it's prayer. It's prayer. You see, what's interesting about the way we're studying this this morning is we see inspiring faith on both sides. We see it from its author, which is Paul, all of us would agree he had a very inspiring faith. But he's writing to a people who apparently also have an inspiring faith. And so look at what he says in verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my heart in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. What Paul was saying there, he's basically saying, you know something, I think of you guys a lot. I'm just going to hear, I'm just going to tell you, you inspire me, but I, I'm also telling you, I, I never cease to pray for you guys. You see, in verse 8, Paul, as I said earlier, is impressed with their testimony. And it was obvious that God was working so much so that the whole world knew of their faith. As I said earlier, it was a faith that was true and inspiring. Now think of this. Why would Paul pray for them without ceasing? I mean, can't you think, won't you think there'd be other places that needed more prayer? Like where he was, where he was ministering to at the time? But no, he, he, he prayed for them specifically. This is not on your outline, but I think there's two main reasons. And one of them we know of that is true is that church was under persecution. So he was praying for them while they were under the persecution. 
But second of all, and I think this is true of our lives too, and what we find even today, they were a target for, for the enemy. Now, let me just say this about the enemy. He doesn't like God getting any good press. Did you know that? The enemy seeks to destroy any work of God, any work of God. Whether you're talking about a church 2,000 years ago or you're talking about a church 2,000 years later or you're talking about a family 2,000 years later or an individual that's really trying to live for God. And Listen, anywhere there is good press for God, the enemy is not far behind seeking to destroy what's going on. And he does that not only in churches. He does that in our individual's, individual lives. Listen to the statement. Anytime God is, is working and lives are being transformed, the enemy sees it as a challenge to bring about destruction, especially when others are inspired by it and are hearing about it. You know that to be true, don't you? I remember some years ago and even this past week, I've, I ran into a couple of people who said, hey, I've heard about Putnam. I, I, man, I hear it's a great church. I hear y'all are doing things outside the box. I hear you're really trying to, to reach the world. I hear about you. I mean, they went on and on. I was like, man, that sounds like a great church. I'd like to be a part of that one. You know? And I'm just going to, I'll tell you this. As inspiring as it was to hear that about our church, it also let me know that we, we're a target now. If people are hearing about what God is doing in a local body, the enemy doesn't like it. It's good press for God. He seeks to destroy. Let me tell you something about you, you as an individual, maybe you and your family. Did you know that if all of a sudden God gets a hold of your heart and he begins to work on your heart in such a way that it does inspire others, that others do hear of it, you do know you're a target also, don't you? About every year, we have all in marriage has a some type of marriage emphasis. And this past year, we we had it on Saturday. But every year, uh, they give me the, the privilege of kind of closing out the conference. And every year, you know how I leave them. Here's what I'll say, because there's great material in that conference, material enough to transform the marriage. Okay, that's how good the information is. And here's what I'll share with them. Listen. A lot of you are making commitments here this weekend. A lot of you want what God wants in your marriage, and you're going to make the strides. You've been given the resources. You've been given the information. Now you're going to try to make that, to turn that corner, to carry that marriage where you think God wants it to be. But let me just tell you this. The enemy's not backing off. Any ground that he's gained in your marriage, he doesn't just hand back over. He's going to protect the ground that he's gained, not only in a marriage, not only in an individual's lives, not only in a, church, in church, a church's life. He doesn't like to give up ground. And so when Paul says, man, I hear about this great work that's going on and how it's inspiring people all around the world, I just want you to know, I never cease to pray for you. Now, why would Paul say that? Because he knew they were a target. He knew the enemy didn't like it. Notice, Paul does not specifically tell them how he's praying for them, but he did in other letters to other churches. And I would have to believe that he's probably uh, going to pray for them in the same way because there's several things that we find. If you study Ephesus, excuse me, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians, you're going to see that he prays specifically for these churches. And he basically says the same thing. 
Let me show you what he says in Ephesians chapter 3 concerning the church at Ephesus. Here's how he said I'm praying for you. Look here on the screen. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might. Now, the phrase strengthened to might with might means this, the power to be capable. In this context, it's the power given to be capable, look on, your, on, your, on the screen, through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts, how? Through faith. The only way anything works when it comes to God and us is our faith. It is the faith. Matter of fact, the Bible says the faith that we do have, you know where we get it from? We get it from him. He's the one that equips us with it. And so faith is a big deal. He says about that faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend. That means to understand with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see, these types of prayers is not only what he prayed at Ephesus, also the church at Colossae, the church also in Philippi. Listen, a true inspiring faith prays for God not only to work, but also prays that the work for the work to be protected and empowered. That's what that's how we need to pray. Next, a declaration of true inspiring faith we see is plea, is plea. Look at Romans chapter one again. Look at verse 10. Paul says, make him request if by some means, now at last, I may, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. Now, here's what you need to understand. Paul not only prayed for their well-being, he also wanted to come to them to make an investment in their lives and in their ministry. Now, how many of you would think it'd be pretty cool to receive a letter from the Apostle Paul that says, hey guys, I'd love to come visit with you. I'd love to come and encourage you. I'd love to come alongside of you and minister to you guys. How many of you find that pretty, pretty impressive? I mean, that would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? I would be totally intimidated, to be honest with you. But, but anyway, but, but that would be neat. And that's what Paul was telling them there in Rome. His, his reputation is being built. They're seeing that he is someone who can, who's being used mightily by God and, and, and how the Holy Spirit is using him. And sure, they would want that to happen. You see, here, here's what we need to understand. There are many people in the church who are quick to criticize but never themselves invest in the ministry themselves. I mean, and that happens everywhere. But Paul wasn't one of those. There, there's also people who, who give to the ministry, and that's an important aspect, but they, they never find themselves to, or to be motivated to serve or to minister. Paul was neither one of these. He could not do enough to help and encourage the local church. He couldn't do enough. Paul seemed to plead with God to send him to Rome to help the church there. Look at verse 10 again. He says, by some means. You see, history in God's word tells us he's going to go to Rome later. But guess how he's going to go to Rome? As a prisoner of Rome. And he's going to go there and he's going to spend some time there. Some people estimate as much as three years. But he will be a prisoner to Rome. But what's interesting is he will have a very effective ministry to the local church, even though he's a prisoner. Next, we see a declaration of true inspiring faith. We see it's longing. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 11. For I long to see you, 
that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be able, so that you may be established. Now, again, we see the heart of true inspiring faith is not only in the church here in Rome, but also in the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted to bring his gifts given to him by the Holy Spirit to minister to the church and reach those in Rome for Christ. Now, the term established is something that, that Paul writes about a lot. When he says established, he'll use in some places the word grounded. Have you ever heard him use that before? Oh, yeah, he loves that terminology, established, grounded. It means he wanted to help them grow and be grounded. And there's three places. If you study all the epistles that Paul wrote, there's three places that he seemed to emphasize that he wanted people to be established in. Uh, one, this is not on your outline, but listen to this, that they be established in God's word. Do you think it's important to be established in God's word? I would say, I would dare say more so in this world than we've ever been before. And, and, and here's what he's saying. He wants them to have spiritual understanding. Go and read every letter that Paul wrote to the churches and even to, to Titus and Timothy. Here's what, you're going to, here's what you'll see a commonality in. The fact that he wanted them all to have spiritual understanding, not worldly understanding, not human philosophy understanding. He wanted them to have what? Spiritual understanding. Y'all, that is the greatest need apart from salvation any of us could have. We heard him talking about the college students, and they'll be coming back. They'll, if you want to meet a lot of them, stay for the next 11 o'clock service. There'll be a lot of them here. They're good kids. They're really, I shouldn't say kids. Good, great young adults. And I'll be honest with you. My prayer for our teenagers here at this church, for those college students who are now, many of them will probably be freshmen who are now going into the college scene, academia and all that. It's important for us to learn and be equipped in, in the disciplines that we study. I understand all that, but nothing is greater, listen to me, than giving our children, than giving them spiritual understanding. Let me ask you a question. This is a little convicting. Would you, how well do you, would you say that you're doing with the next generation of helping them with spiritual understanding? It's amazing how we'll give them everything else the world offers. And we even want them to be good in those things. And, and there's nothing wrong with that in and apart, apart from itself. But if we're not giving them spiritual understanding, we're not giving them anything to build their life upon. At least the way God intends our life to go. Got to bring that spiritual understanding Here's another one. He, he wishes they would be established in God's love. Now, why would it be important to be established in God's love? Here, here's why. Paul seemed to make a connection. I want you grounded and rooted and established in God's love. Why would he want that? It's because of this. When we understand the fullness of God's love, guess what? We will always respond correctly. That's the reason we need to understand God's love. It's for our response I mean, how do you turn away a loving father? How do you turn away someone who wants to love you so much to invest in you, give you everything you need? How would you turn away from that? So he wants them to be established in understanding in God's love. But thirdly, he wants them to understand their identity in Christ. Go and study in, in the epistles Paul wrote, the phrase in Christ comes up a whole lot. It's all the talk of identity. That our identity is not in our sin. 
any longer when we come to Christ. Our identity is not in this world. Our identity is not in the careers that we hold. Our identities are not in the fact that we may be a father to someone, not in the truest sense, but or, or a husband to someone or a wife to someone. Our identity must be established and grounded in Christ or we will totally miss what he really desires for us. We'll totally miss it. Now, here's another one. A declaration of true inspiring faith is interconnectedness. That's a long word, <laughs> but, but it fits. Put it in there. <laughs> Let's move on. Okay, but anyway, Romans 1 tells us what that looks like. Verse 12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. That is interconnectedness. That's important. Paul knew that that was important to the local church. Do you know it's very important for you to be interconnected to the body here? Now, now I'm going I'm to I'm I'm just tell you, to be interconnected to the body means you're going to merge into the life of the body. You're going to serve in that body. You're going to give to the causes of that body. But not only that, you're going to want to be a part of that body. Now, I will tell you this. As honored as we are that you're here this morning sitting in this service, you will not truly be interconnected until you find a way to join in and, and help and do life together and do mission together. That's the key. And that's what Paul is talking about here. That's the terminology. Paul not only wanted to inspire them in the faith, he also knew that fellowship with them would inspire his own faith. The interconnectedness and inspiring fellowship of faith, listen, is only possible when we, when, when we follow the words of Paul to the church at Philippians. Here's what he said. Look here on the screen. Philippians 2. How does interconnectedness really happen? Here it is. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, that means if, have, you, have you gained anything in being in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the, of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being what? like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, being of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself or herself. How many of you find that easy? I don't. I, I, I got flesh nature. I got sin nature. A lot of times it just comes out and goes all over the place, all big mess. You ever seen it make a big mess? But here's what he's saying. He's saying living in the spirit in such a way that you're not the only thing that shows up. You're not the only one. You see the interconnectedness of those around you and those that, that are there and the mission that God has laid on our hearts and the mandate that he's placed on all of us and you're working to that end and you're doing it hand in hand. And the only way you can do that is to esteem others better than yourself. Let each of you look out not only for your own interest but also for the interest of others. So important. Next, a declaration of true inspiring faith. We see its manifestation. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 13. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Now, when Paul says that, he, he uses that phrase quite a bit in Scripture. What he's saying, he's saying, I'm bringing you a matter of great importance. He's saying, listen up. You know how Jesus would say that? Verily, verily, I say unto you, 
what does that normally mean? Listen up. You need to get this. Okay? Paul uses this phrase to say that. That I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now. Now, in some cases, Paul tells us that the enemy hindered his ministry and his plans. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says this, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But what happened? But Satan hindered us. The enemy got in the way. Is that possible? Has that ever happened to you? The enemy got in the way? Let me ask you a better question. Did you ever get in the way? But Paul is saying, listen, I'm just going to tell you, the enemy can hinder the plans. But here in this text, listen, we find out in other parts of the word, it was the Spirit directing him to minister in Asia Minor and other parts of Greece rather than going to Rome at this time. Now, here's what we understand about that. Sometimes in the faith life, it is difficult to discern direction. How many of you figured that out? It is many times. The reason we need wisdom and discernment and spiritual knowledge is for this. Paul seemed to know when the enemy was hindering him. He, had, uh, he wanted to do certain things, but he also knew when God said, no, I need you over here more. And he understood that too. So look at Romans chapter one again. Look at the second part of verse 13. He says that I might have some fruit among you just as among the other Gentiles. Now, this verse seems to imply, along with others in scripture, that Paul was someone who did not like to waste his time. Paul did not have a lot of patience with those who were not serious about their faith and the spreading of the faith. How many of you picked up that reading uh, some of Paul's writings? Didn't have a lot of patience. Paul, let me tell you the kind of guy Paul was, which is, which is the reason I believe he was very effective. If you requested something of Paul and he, you said, Paul, I need to meet with you. I need to talk with you about something. And you were to sit down with him, and you were to lay out everything you were dealing with and all these different things, and Paul would simply say, and he, he was always good at this, well, let me tell you what I think the Lord thinks of this, and here's what you need to do. Paul, Paul was good at that. Paul would be one of those guys that if three days later he heard that you weren't doing what he told you to do, that God had laid on his heart to tell you, and you wanted to request a second meeting, guess what? You're probably not going to get that meeting. <laughs> Paul was matter of fact. Paul was one of those that's like, here's the word, live the word. Don't make excuses. Don't rationalize. Live it. Go after it. Now, this verse also seems to imply that Paul was obsessed with his life-producing fruit. He would have taken the verse in John 15 very seriously. Where Jesus tells his disciples this. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, this is Jesus talking, he who abides in me and I in them, in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Paul was one of those people who wanted to be connected to the vine in such a way that his life continued to produce fruit. That's where we need to be. Now, fruit can be displayed in three areas according to scripture. Look on your outline. First of all, in attitude. And of course, you know what I'm going to say, the fruit of the Spirit. 
What's the fruit of the Spirit? If we're living in the Spirit, what's the attitude look like? Here it is. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's what it looks like in attitude. How about next? In activity. We see things in Scripture. Holy living, worship, giving. Romans 6, says this. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. The fruit of holiness. Living a righteous life. Next, a third way. Addition. Addition. Leading others to Christ. Acts 16.5 says, so the, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Listen, when people came to know Christ, when the church was adding and adding on, guess what? That was fruit that was coming to the church. A true inspiring faith produces much fruit. Next, a declaration of a true inspiring faith is obligation. In Romans chapter one, look at verse 14. Paul said, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and unwise. Now, let me tell you how divided the first century was. Let me just give you, you you think we're divided now? How many of you agree we're divided right now in the country is race and everything? I mean, everybody's waging war on everybody. And and think, think about what was going on in the first century. In the first century, a Jew considered everyone who was not a Jew a Gentile. And guess what they thought Gentiles were? Dogs. Would you say that's a good way of looking at others? No. A Gentile considered everyone who was not a Gentile a barbarian. Jews prided themselves in legalistic religion while Greeks prided themselves in philosophical rhetoric. They both would view the barbarian as being outside of both cultures. But Paul felt he had an obligation to spread the gospel to all. Mark 16, 15 says this, and he, Jesus, said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, every creature. True inspiring faith is obligated to share the gospel with all. Next, a declaration of true inspiring faith is eagerness. Look at verse uh, verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, let me tell you what Peter said about that whole idea. 1 Peter 3.15, look at the screen. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. The commentator John Phillips writes this. I love this quote. Paul was so eager to share the gospel with the world that when he preached it in Jerusalem, the religious center of the world, he was mobbed. When he preached in it in Athens, the intellectual center of the world, he was mocked. When he preached it in Rome, the immoral center of the world, he was martyred. Paul's true inspiring faith was empowered, and this is what we find in these scriptures, by his gratitude to God, his love for Jesus, and his courage from the Holy Spirit. Now, let's shift gears. Paul goes from telling us or giving us a declaration of true inspiring faith to an expl- explanation of, true, of the true gospel. And the first thing I want you to see there is, is essence. Is essence. The world of Paul's day was dominated by three lines of thought. Greek log- logic, excuse me, Greek logic, 
Roman law and Jewish religion, along with pagan, uh, the pagan uh, rituals. Yet in the face of these man-made philosophies and worldviews, he was able to say in Romans 1, verse 16, here's what he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. These Greeks over here, they claim, to be, they claim to be intellectuals. They seem to be able to think above all that man can bring. And, and the laws over here, the Romans are bringing the law and trying to tell us how we need to get where we need to be morally and all this stuff. I'm just here to tell you both of that is, is, is baloney compared to the gospel. To the gospel. Paul knew that the gospel stood above them all and and was a person's only hope. The gospel was a message from God, the creator and judge of mankind. As far as Paul was concerned, God's message was all that really mattered. Next, we see its effectiveness. The gospel's effectiveness. Look at verse uh, 16 again. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Here it is. For it is the power of God. It has the power to transform a life, and Paul knew it could transform others. Paul never got over his own transformation. Did you know that? Did you know that after his own transformation two other times in Scripture, we find him talking about that event? He's out giving his testimony before kings, and he's giving that that, that whole idea of himself being transformed. He never got over it. He saw how effective it was. He wanted it to happen in others' lives. Next, it's eventuality. The gospel is eventuality. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Colossians 1 says this. He, God, has delivered us or rescued us from the power of darkness and has conveyed us or brought us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's how effective it is. Did you know, let me tell you what the Bible says about you before you came to Christ. You were dead. Did you know that? You were blind. You were ignorant of anything spiritual. You couldn't find your way to God if you had to. And yet he provided all these things. We were in darkness. Now we're in light. We were, we were brought, he brought us into the kingdom. Listen, the gospel arrests the mind, awakens a conscience, inflames a heart, saves a soul, reframes our identity, and sanctifies our lives. Next, the gospel is extent. Look at verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Christ is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Everyone who believes is the idea, the whole idea of believes is trusting in, relying on, having faith in. The message and reach of the gospel is not inclusive or exclusive. It is an invitation to all. What does it say? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall what? Be saved. Next, the gospel, it's expression. In Romans chapter one, I want you to look at verse 17, the first part. It says, for in it, Of course, the subject here is the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Righteousness, listen, makes the gospel and its invitation possible. But not just any righteousness. Jesus' righteousness. Now, this is not on your outline, but listen to this. The gospel has two main components to it. It's good news. It's the good news of Jesus' provision for salvation. But secondly, it is an invitation 
to all who, who will receive this salvation. So Jesus's, or Jesus' righteousness makes the gospel and its invitation possible. Let me, tell you, let me prove it to you. This is what this verse is trying to tell us. When I say righteousness, did you know that almost 90% of the population says that's what they believe it takes for them to get to heaven? But the righteousness that they're talking about is their own righteousness. As long as the good outweighs the bad. I'm in, right? No. Could be further from the truth. What this verse is saying, the righteousness mentioned here is the righteousness of Christ. Let me tell you what he did. He lived a sinless, perfect, perfect life. The only way salvation is possible, the only way there is even a message of, of the gospel is because he lived the perfect life. If he did not, there would be no gospel, there would be no sacrifice, but he did. So now we're not trusting in our righteousness. Whose are we trusting in? His righteousness. His righteousness. It's all about that. I will never be good enough. You'll never be good enough. It's him. Lastly, an explanation of the true gospel is evidence. Romans 1, verse 17, it says, As it is written, the just, the just is, it could be righteous or who's declared righteous, shall live by faith. This verse is saying that the evidence that we have received the gospel by way of Jesus' righteousness is displayed by a life of faith. How does that look? Look here on the screen. You know these verses. Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved. How did it come about? Through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works. It's not your own righteousness, lest anyone should boast. You can't, you can't say anything good about yourself, really, in the true essence of it. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. It, doesn't say, it does not say by good works, but for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What he's talking about in verse 10 is the expression and evidence of the gospel, that we will walk in those things he has set forth. So here it is. True inspiring faith always has its roots and a gospel provided by Jesus' righteousness. I want to close with this footnote and then the application. I'll go quickly. Look on your outline. The messages of false gospels. And by the way, there are a lot out there. Here's just a few. The gospel of religion says, turn over a new leaf. Do better. Do more good than bad. The gospel of materialism says, your worth is determined by what you have. Gain is the goal of life. The gospel of liberalism says, I'm okay, you're okay. God accepts us like we are and will take us to heaven. The gospel of the world says, do as you please for life is short. Those are messages all around us. But here it is. Here's the gospel the, in the application. The true gospel declares you are a sinner and if you die in your sins, you will be eternally condemned. However, God loves you, sent his son, the Lord Jesus, into the world. Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you will place your faith in him, then you can and will be eternally saved. That's the gospel. You have been given a gospel worth believing and one that is worth sharing. The question is... Does your faith inspire and motivate you to share the gospel? And here's all that means. 
Has a big deal happened in, in your life in such a way that you can't help but share it? That's inspiring faith. That's true inspiring faith. Paul basically tells us right here. Here's, here it is in a nutshell. My transformation was so great. My faith right now is so true. It is so great that it, it inspires me to tell everyone I come in contact with. And I'm not going to waste my time with those who really don't want to hear, who really don't want to yield themselves and surrender them to it because I'm just going to move on to the next person and I'm going to tell someone who really wants to know. That's what he's trying to tell us. So my question to you is this. Do you know him this morning? Do you know Jesus? Do you have an inspiring faith? We're not going to have an invitation this morning, but here's what I do want to do because I think this is easier for a lot of people who don't know Jesus. It's hard. I understand. It's hard for you to sing, for us to stand here, and for you to come and walk down here in front of all these people. I understand that. But after this service, and I've got a little time. I'm going to be over here in the corner, and I want to invite you to just simply come up and say, hey, I want to know more about what you're talking about today. I would like, I would love the privilege to talk with you about that. And so just, just come on over there. I'd, I'd love for that to happen right after this service. Y'all, if you don't know Jesus, as I said so many times, that's the greatest need you have. You need to know him. And if you do know him, you need to share him. Let's pray. I'll ask ushers to come forward if they would. Father, we just come to you right now. We just thank you for your goodness, Lord. And Lord, it's just an amazing thing to think about the salvation that you provide for us. Father, I pray for those who, who've already received that salvation, Lord, that we will be inspired enough to share the, the message that's taking place in us. It's so real to us that we can't help but share it. And Father, I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, I pray today will be the day they give their life to you, that they place their faith in you, not believing in a false gospel, but the true gospel, that they see their sin, that they see their need for a Savior, and that they would respond. Father, we thank you for this offering and pray that you use it as we continue to do what you call us to do to reach people. We do lift up Quinn as he's there and possibly on his way back soon uh, there in Zambia and just pray for him and the carpenters and all those that we support and all those we get in behind financially and pray for. Lord, help us to be busy about getting this word out, not only as individuals, but as a church. We thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen.